welcome to the Canadian Nutrition Society podcast, Nutrition Conversations, a podcast dedicated to exploring the latest research in nutrition and health in Canada. In each episode, we invite expert guests to share their insight and knowledge on a wide range of topics from dietary patterns to sports nutrition, food insecurity, and food sustainability. Whether you're looking to improve your own health and wellness or simply stay up to date on the latest developments in the field of nutrition, we hope you'll join us on this journey to better understand the role food plays in our lives. Please note that the views expressed by speakers in CNS podcasts are those of the speaker and not necessarily of CNS. Sitting in the host chair in this episode is the Scientific Director of the Canadian Nutrition Society, Dr. Sharon Panahi, who will be talking to Dr. Vicky Drapeau on Episode 4 of Nutrition Conversations on Understanding Eating Behaviors to Promote Healthy Eating, Metabolic Health, and Body Weight Management. This podcast is sponsored by Dairy Farmers of Canada. Hello, Nutrition Conversation listeners. What we eat and how we eat includes determinants such as the environment and genetics, which influence appetite and body weight control, metabolic health, and eating behaviors in children and adults. On this episode, I'm pleased to chat with Dr. Vicky Drapeau, a professor in the Department of Physical Education at Université Laval in Quebec City and a dietitian, co-founder, and coordinator of the Clinique de Nutrition at Laval, which is a consultation clinic comprised of dietitians and other health professionals who work together to promote healthy eating, an active lifestyle, as well as sustainable health. She's also the scientific director of the Sustainable Health Consultation Committee at the university. Dr. Trapeau's research is primarily focused on three themes, which include obesity management and prevention, eating behaviors, and appetite control, where her motto is, to better understand is to better intervene. Dr. Drapeau's current research is supported by the Canadian Institutes for Health Research, Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council, and Dairy Farmers of Canada. I must also add that I feel really privileged to chat with Vicky today, having worked with her for so many years in different capacities. And with that, I welcome you, or rather I should say bienvenue, Vicky, to episode four of Nutrition Conversations. Merci beaucoup, Sherian. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. Well, it's a pleasure to have you, and um, you've always had an interesting vision in your research, and one of the reasons I'm really excited to chat with you today is because your research work has been very multidisciplinary from, you know, working on uh, epidemiological studies and various cohorts, including the infamous Quebec Family Study that was initiated back in 1978, to clinical interventions focusing on body weight and appetite control, uh, metabolic health, as well as eating behaviors. And I know you've always tried to put your research into practice and in the work that you do as a dietitian as well. So considering your vast background and that you seem to wear so many hats, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how you got into this type of research, um, as well as expand uh, on the motto of your research to better understand, to better intervene. Um, I must say, I really like the sound of that and really appreciate the fact that this is uh, the mission of your lab. Oh, well, thank you, Shirian. I don't have a lot of uh, opportunity to talk about this. So, yeah, I think that my work is very diverse, but it mainly aimed to better understand behaviors associated with appetite control, food intake, metabolic health, and weight management. I would say that 
I'm more of a generalist nutritionist who likes to understand overall behavior instead of being very an expert on a specific topic. And I think that this comes from my experience as a clinical nutritionist, you know, so I've been uh, uh, in the clinic with the clients from the last 20 years. So I'm not just interested by just what we eat, but also how we eat and as well as their determinants and how they influence appetite control, metabolic health and the long term body weight management and that in adults, but also in children. We also have a multi-level research methodology exploring the contribution and the interaction of many factors, behavioral, psychological, physiological factors influencing those variables. Another preoccupation of my work is that, and it's something that I see a lot in my clinical practice, is the variability of response to an intervention. So why do some individuals benefit less from an intervention than others? So I think that when you understand more what specific food or ingredients and how eating behavior influence appetite, metabolic health and body weight, and also who are more vulnerable, then you are more able to intervene uh, by developing more personalized interventions. Right. And I think uh, these are important questions to ask. And so uh, maybe we'll talk a little bit about the why uh, later, um, but maybe we can talk about some of those what's and how's uh, that you've mentioned. So uh, we know that obesity is complex and multifactorial and that your the focus of uh, your research has been primarily on identifying foods and eating behavior traits that can influence our appetite, body weight and, and metabolic health. Uh, I know you also have some key studies that have looked at food groups uh, such as fruits, vegetables, and, and dairy products, as well as eating behavior traits, um, you know, the, the three dimensions of, of eating behaviors that have really formed the basis for your work. So I was wondering if you can speak to some of the factors that you've identified and that are associated with the risk for weight gain and maybe discuss what you have found in some of those studies. Well, thank you for this question, Shirin. But before answering this question, I need to say that in our studies, we always try to identify behavioral factors not only associated with body weight or body weight gain per se, but also associated with appetite control, body fat distribution, and metabolic health. It's also important to keep in mind that in our work, we don't think that we are able to identify one unique solution for obesity or body weight gain because this is a multiple uh, factor condition and involves many, many factors. So it's not possible, even though we can identify some specific factor, we need to consider the individual in his globality. Saying that, we have identified in the past some specific food groups that may be more protective than others. As an example, uh, an example, in one earlier study that we did, and this goes back to 2004, using the data from the Quebec Family Study, which is a well-known longitudinal cohort study, we found first that a decrease in the consumption of fat and fatty foods as well as sugar and sweet food was associated with less pronounced increase in body weight and adiposity indicator over time. But more interestingly, we found that among 41 food groups, 
from a food-based questionnaire, we observed that an increase in whole fruit and skim and partly skim milk also appear to be the specific food pattern consistently associated with body, body weight, uh, an improved body weight management over time in this population. I think that this is interesting because these results can help to develop more specific recommendation, improving body weight management and metabolic health over time. Now, I is, as I mentioned earlier, it's also important to say that obesity is not just the result of what we eat. And thus, we are also looking for other behavioral factors related much more to how we eat. And I mean by that eating behavior traits associated with dietary intake and body weight gain. We also, uh, so we also find, uh, used the Quebec family study and found that some eating behaviors such as a combination of rigid cognitive restraint and disinhibition and high susceptibility for hunger were associated with higher body weight and higher waist circumference and weight gain over time, indicating that some eating behavior traits increase the risk of obesity. And along with these eating behavior traits, we know that differences in appetite control have been suggested to play an essential role in energy balance. For example, in our clinic, we have characterized large variability between individuals regarding their capacity to eat in response to their appetite sensation. I mean that by that, that some individuals report that they are not able to identify their appetite sensation and eat in response to their appetite sensations. So we first document this profile in our clinic, and then we try to characterize this profile in, in our lab. So this profile, we named it the, the low satiety phenotype, which is individual presenting a weak satiety responsiveness can be characterized in the lab using a standardized breakfast and visual analog scale on appetite sensation. So it's really simple. So what we do, we first served a breakfast of around 600 calories for women and 700 calories for men. Then we assess appetite sensation before and after the, the breakfast and, for, and that for one hour after the breakfast. And we calculate the change in appetite sensation, and we obtain from that the satiety quotient score, which is a marker of satiety efficiency. So the lower is the score, the less the person can eat in response to, their, to her, her appetite sensation. So based on this phenotype, we and other colleagues show that first, there is a very large variability of response uh, to a standardized breakfast among individuals. And we observe that either in individual presenting obesity or even normal weight. And those characterized by a low satiety responsiveness have been associated with a greater wanting for high fat food, high, higher level of disinhibition and susceptibility for hunger, more cravings, more symptoms of night eating, and all of these behaviors are characteristics of individuals who overeat or are more at risk of obesity or weight gain. 
So these individuals, we also um, study in another uh, cohort, and this is the Willis cohort for the weight loss intervention cohort that we have uh, here at Laval. We studied these individuals to, to, and we tried to, to look if these individuals were good responder to a, a weight loss intervention based on energy restriction. And we found that in response to a weight loss intervention based on caloric restriction, these individuals experience undesirable changes in some eating behavior traits, such as a more important increase in cognitive restraint and a lower decrease in situational susceptibility to disinhibition, which indicate that they are maybe more at risk of weight gain over time. Well, those uh, certainly are a lot of factors um, that contribute to the complexity of, uh, of obesity. There's definitely a lot to consider, and we know that it's not just uh, energy and energy out. Um, and I do want to talk about this variability um, that, that you mentioned earlier. So we live in an obesogenic environment, uh, which promotes larger portion sizes, uh, greater availability and affordability of energy-dense foods, and increased marketing marketing around these foods. And, and the fact that our modern environment favors sort of lower physical activity and sedentariness, which are certainly factors that are involved. But despite this so-called obesogenic environment, um, not all individuals develop obesity, which I find rather interesting. And so this suggests that individual, environmental, biological, and genetic differences, and a lot of those factors that you mentioned earlier, may explain some of this variability. And so this is something that's caught my attention, especially with some of, more, uh, some of your more recent work and uh, those of some of your students um, related to genetic variability. So um, I was just wondering if you could maybe comment a little bit more on that work. Yes, sure, uh, Shirin. So as you mentioned, genetic factors are involved in the obesity risk. And, and it is well known that about... 40 to 75% of the variation in, in BMI in the population is expla explained by genetic factors. So those studies have also highlighted that obesity is the result of a gene-environment interaction, probably explaining a large variability in our susceptibility to obesity, in, and then that even in our obesogenic environment. I sometimes say to my client in the clinic that we are not all equal when, when we are in front of a piece of cake. So even though many study, studies have highlighted that genetics is involved in obesity, very few studies try to understand by which pathways genetic can increase the risk of obesity. And this can be done using mediation analysis. So in our team, uh, one of my former PhD students, Raphael Jacob, uh, was interested by this question, and she performed a study in collaboration with my colleague, Louis Terus, using also the participant of the Quebec family study. So first, we identified the obesity risk of each participant using a polygenic risk score for BMI. And then Raphael performed mediation analysis and showed that adults at greater risk of obesity, so with a higher score, a higher polygenic risk score, reported more 
habitual and situational disinhibited eating and a more pronounced tendency to feel hungry both internally and also in response to external foods. And those factors mediated the genetic susceptibility risk to obesity in those adults. So these results indicate that appetite-related eating behaviors such as disinhibition, susceptibility for hunger, may be one of the mechanisms through which genes determine adiposity level in adults uh, susceptible, more susceptible. These results are also important because they show again that when it comes to obesity and our desire to eat, we are not all born equal. And those with a higher genetic uh, obesity, those who have a product predisposition to feel hungry and respond to external food cues are particularly, particularly vulnerable to our food environment, which include palatable food uh, that are available everywhere at a low cost. So this, I think, emphasizes emphasize the, the fact that we need to also intervene to, in, uh, in the environment to help those individuals with body weight management over the long term. Right. And um, continuing on this topic of genetic susceptibility to obesity, I believe uh, in that paper, um, which was on the role of eating behavior traits in meeting, mediating genetic susceptibility to obesity, um, you had looked at the different uh, food groups as well. So um, from, from what I had read, uh, you had shown that high intakes of high fat foods and sugar sweetened beverages and and low intakes of fruits, vegetables, milk, and yogurt uh, partly also mediate this association between uh, genetic susceptibility to obesity, uh, BMI, and, and waist circumference. And in that study, I guess the, the yogurt among the food groups being one of my favorite foods, and I know one of yours too, uh, kind of stood out to me. Um, and so we know that among the dairy foods, yogurt impacts body weight and metabolic profiles. And, and we've seen this in the Quebec family study and in in some of the work that you and I have even done together and uh, many of the epidemiological studies um, as well. And so the findings we know are quite consistent. And so uh, I know that, uh, well, you received a grant a few years ago to examine the role of yogurt consumption and also a genetic predisposition to obesity. So um, first, I'm interested to know how you defined genetic susceptibility or, or predisposition to obesity. And I guess, could, could someone alter their predisposition to obesity based on consumption of some of these foods? Yes, good question, Shirin. And I think you really, you know very well my research program based on your introduction to this question. Um, first, yeah, how can we define genetic susceptibility? In the previous studies that you were referring to and the one that I mentioned with uh, Raphael, we use a polygenic risk score that can be derived from the addition of different SNPs or genetic variants associated with BMI. And I'm not the expert to explain exactly how it was done. We have my colleague, Louis Perus, an expert in genetic who helped us to determine that. And these uh, genetic variants can be obtained from geno genome-wide genotyping to assess the genetic predisposition to obesity. So the polygenic risk score is a powerful approach to capture the genetic obesity risk, risk 
But a more simple approach, and we also use that in our studies, is to simply identify your obesity risk based on parental obesity. So having one or two parents with obesity is associated with higher adiposity marker and also higher polygenic risk score. Now, for the part of your question related to is, is it possible for someone to alter um, their predisposition to obesity based on the consumption of certain food? I think the answer is uh, yes. And we did some work on this topic a few years ago, I think it was around 2017, when we received the support of a Yini initiative from Danone. And we conducted a study investigating the role of familial predisposition to obesity and the association between yogurt intake, body weight, and metabolic health in youth. And to do that, we returned to the Quebec family study and first identified youth with and without a genetic susceptibility to obesity based on their familial history of obesity. And we also characterized their yogurt consumption based on the three-day dietary journal. So youth with at least one parent presenting obesity were, considering, were considered more at risk. We first compare um, those with a family history of obesity from those without, and we found that those who were at risk had a less favorable body composition and metabolic profile. And, and that was independent of the study covariates. And then when we compare the metabolic profile of youth with a family history of obesity who were consumer of yogurt, we found that those who were consumer, uh, they had a lower fasting insulin and HOMAR index. This is an indicator of of insulin sensitivity compared to those, those who were non-consumer of yogurt. And this was still significant after adjustment for many potential confounders. And more interestingly, we, we found that there was no differences in the metabolic profile between youth with without this uh, familial risk of obesity who were consumer or not consumer of obesity, suggesting that yogurt consumption could be more beneficial in those who are more susceptible to uh, obesity or more who have a higher predisposition to obesity. Of course, this is only a cross-sectional study and we need to stay prudent with the conclusion. However, I believe that those results can generate some interesting hypothesis to explain association that we can see with yogurt and metabolic health. So I guess for, for our listeners uh, who are interested in, in that study, um, it's been published in the European Journal of Clinical Nutrition, and it's called The Relationship Between Yogurt Consumption, uh, Body Weight, and Metabolic Profiles in Youth with a Familial Predisposition to Obesity. Uh, so I'm going to shift gears uh, just a little bit because uh, we've talked a lot about the, the QFS and the cohort studies that you've done um, and certainly there is a lot of literature, um, you know, in, in all of the different areas that you, you've done all of this work in. And so um, speaking of youth at risk of obesity, you've done a lot of work in children and adolescents and even amongst families. And we know that it's important to adopt healthy eating habits at a young age. Um, and so I guess my question to you is how can we promote healthy eating behaviors and habits? So thank you, Chirin, for this question, which is directly linked to our motto, 
which is to understand, to better understand, to better intervene. And knowing that some food groups may be more beneficial than others, we always try to build from those these results and develop innovative strategies to help uh, individuals, adults, children to adopt and maintain healthy eating behaviors. For example, based on our results that we uh, published in 2004, indicating that fruit and milk are food groups associated with uh, an improved body weight management over time, we develop a web-based nutrition intervention called the Nutriathlon, which is an intervention uh, which can help children and youth to consume fruit and vegetable and dairy products. More specifically, this intervention is an eight-week nutrition, web-based nutrition, nutrition challenge where participants are encouraged to increase their quantity and variety of fruit and vegetable and dairy product consumption. They have a specific target that they try to reach every two weeks. They also have a regulation periods. Uh, which is mainly, and this is every two weeks, which is mainly uh, a meeting with the nutrition to help them to identify strategies to increase their fruit and vegetable and dairy product consumption. So this program also includes behavior change techniques such as goal setting, self-monitoring, feedback, identification of barriers, solution, and social support. And it was designed to develop the, the, the autonomy of the children to walk towards the gradual adoption of ma and maintenance of healthy eating habits. We first launched this program in school settings. So it was first launched in primary school, then in secondary, secondary school. And we showed that this program had a positive impact on fruit and vegetable consumption, as well as dairy consumption. And the, those results were so promising that we decided to adapt the program and start a new initiative, but more targeted to families, families with at least one child presenting overweight or obesity. So it was mainly the same web-based nutrition challenge over eight weeks, but the team was now the family and not the student in class. And the result of this study, which was recently, recently uh, published in uh, the Nutrition Journal, were more modest uh, for this ver version of the intervention and mainly showed that it helped, this intervention helped to increase the dairy product consumption in children and their parents, at least in the short term, because we saw an increase in consumption in dairy after eight weeks, but it was no longer maintained after four months of the intervention. But I think that these results can be explained by the fact that we had a control group in this, this study, but the control group had a minimal intervention. It was mainly recommendations based, based on the Canadian food, food Guide. So in fact, those uh, uh, families that were randomized in the control group they showed some improvement in dietary intakes over time also. So I think that results uh, are very promising and suggest that when we target more specific food group, 
we may have a more positive impact on adherence and dietary intakes. Another example which is related to our, our motto to better understand, to better intervene, is our satiating intervention developed to help individuals presenting low satiety responsiveness adopt and maintain healthy eating behaviors. So we, we first developed this non-restrictive ad libitum intervention. This means that there was no energy restriction and the intervention was based on highly satiating foods or ingredients. So this means that we combine together in one intervention all food and, and ingredients that we know have an impact on satiety, such as uh, low glycemic index, high protein, high fiber, capsaicin, etc. And then we evaluate the impact of this intervention on many metabolic variables, body weight, composition, satiety responsiveness, eating behavior traits, and also adherence in men presenting abdominal obesity, and also characterized with low or high satiety responsiveness profile. And we compare them to a control group. And in this study, the control group was... Um, submitted to a general nutrition recommendation based on the Canadian Food Guide. So the results showed that the ad libitum satiating diet results in twice the decrease in percent body fat in both groups, so regardless of the satiety responsiveness profile of the participant, compared to the control healthy diet. In addition, we also observed that both diets promote a significant sp spontaneous energy deficit. So even those who were on the control, uh, in the control group. However, only the satiating diet had a beneficial influence on satiety responsiveness. So we saw a, a, a very, very important increase in satiety responsiveness. And this more specifically, in those who presented low satiety responsiveness at the beginning of the study. We also show that the satiating intervention uh, had a significantly higher adherence rate in, in this group compared to the control group. So these uh, results were really promising, but they were very short term. It was a very short term intervention. It was only 16 weeks. So we are not now conducting another randomized control trial, uh, a more longer term intervention trials. It's a 18 months intervention in men and women based on the satiating intervention to see how it may impact uh, metabolic profile, eating behaviors and body weight management over a long term. So we will see for the results. I, I absolutely agree with that. And I think it's really important to assess these factors in the context of an intervention and the fact that you've started these programs um, targeting children and, and families. I think uh, these are great initiatives. Um, and I really appreciate the work that you've done with cohorts, um, you know, using the Quebec Family Study, uh, which has really helped to generate hypotheses in several different areas. And that, you know, there, there are a lot of longer term clinical interventions that you're currently running amongst adults living with obesity, children, adolescents, and like I mentioned, families, which is really important as the family definitely plays a huge role. Um, so I guess my, my final question to you is uh, if you could provide our listeners with some key recommendations 
based on what we've learned so far from your research, from, you know, your, your programs, and, and maybe, maybe even as a dietitian, you know, your, your experience that you talked about in the clinic, what would that be? Yes. Um, yeah, this is interesting. So I, I think that we, we, sh- we should first recognize that we are not all equal with respect to appetite control and body weight management and how we respond to an intervention. So there is certainly no one fit all intervention when it comes to, when it comes to appetite control, obesity management, and metabolic, metabolic health also. So I think that we should push, continue the study of factor influencing appetite control, eating behaviors, metabolic health, and body weight, and most importantly, work on the evaluation strategy, which could help to develop more specific interventions. So this could be something that could be improved in, in a clinical context. And I also think that of course, general healthy eating recommendation based on the Canadian food guide will always be good recommendation and the main messages that health professionals should promote. But I also believe that we can do better by trying to be more specific and that more specifically to for some more susceptible individual. And perhaps, perhaps for these individuals, this could help them to favor more long-term eating behavior changes. So I think we, we need to go uh, to go to more specific interventions, specifically in those who are more vulnerable. Well, I really uh, think those are great recommendations. I love the message that there's no one size fits all. Um, I do think that recommendations need to be more individualized. Uh, like you mentioned, precision nutrition, precision nutrition right? Um, and so on that note, I thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us, Vicky. It's uh, truly a pleasure to always chat with you, particularly in this context. And uh, maybe I'll add in French a big merci beaucoup. <laughs> merci, Sherian. It was a pleasure. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Nutrition Conversations. We hope you found today's discussion informative and inspiring. If you're interested in hearing more about the latest research in nutrition and health, be sure to check out our website at cns-scn.ca-podcast for upcoming episodes. Remember, our podcasts are also available on the Spotify app, so you can easily listen to us on the go. Simply search for the Nutrition Conversations podcast on Spotify and you'll find all our episodes in one place. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode.